Hello and welcome to the Game Dev London podcast. I'm your host, Oscar Clark, he, him, and I'm on a quest to understand everything you wanted to know about Game Dev, but never dare to ask. And we're part of the Game Dev London community of amazing people who love talking about and sharing their love about the details behind what making games whether or not you're actually based in London. And I am delighted today to be joined by Fionn. Uh, Fionn, uh, please introduce yourself. So uh, tell us a bit about your community, uh, a freelance community manager, is that right? Yes, that is right. So I've been a freelance communi- community manager for about nine months now. So mm-hmm. my time in the industry is very short. Um, but initially I had sort of three years um, doing a sort of general gaming discord server um and i was doing that throughout university um and i came out of university and was thinking oh well what do i want to do as a career um and gaming kind of seemed like the logical choice um because it's been such a big part of my life and realizing actually this sort of community experience i've got with this discord server is transferable straight into community management absolutely and i think so what's interesting, we, we've done a few podcasts lately about how to get into games. And here you are, you're, you've, you've gone through the university experience, you're, um, you're, you're, you're using the experience as a, presumably as a player uh, and a, as somebody running a Discord server, building an audience, a community. And, and you say it's a logical choice. It's not always a logical choice for lots of people. I think, you know, how, how did you understand that games was a potential role, a potential job, a potential career even? Um, I think I was kind of lucky and realized the scale of the games industry um, and was kind of talking to people um, in the space and found like mentoring programs and things and saw actually there's lots of programs going on to try and get people into the games industry. Um, And it's just as viable as going into um, like film or, you know, that kind of route. Um, I did photography and as um, my degree and the university I went to was called the University for the Creative Arts. So mm. it was solely based upon um, people doing animation and those kinds of courses. So I was kind of surrounded by this. Um, which, which campus were you on? Because I know that there's one near me in Farnham. Um, that's the one I went to. One? Yeah. yeah. Because that's a great, that's actually a great um, course, and there's some great. They actually do have a games course at that. Uh, that they do. As well. uh, a couple of my friends are actually the, uh, to the lecturers on it as well. So, uh, although I've not seen them since before the pandemic, so I'm not sure a friend that says I am. Um, <laughs> the, the point being that um, so it's interesting. Here you are. You, you're not specifically getting a training in in the games side, even you, though you're in a, in a creative experience, creative environment. But what why is it that you're how are you bringing are you are you do you think it matters that you're not bringing your photography skill set to this or are you finding that it was the experience of being in the university that allowed you to get exposed to the kind of skills that you need in the role that you're currently doing um i think it's interesting because initially i was very artsy and um games art was actually the course I was looking at first of all um and I think I kind of chickened out and picked photography even though I did love photography I thought oh actually maybe I'm I'll be more successful doing photography than I will doing games art Hmm. when in reality games is what I really enjoyed and you know seeing all these like illustrations of gaming characters and stuff that's what I wanted to be a part of um so that where my sort of games motivation has come from is wanting to be a part of teams that are creating these um, sort of artistic things, um, these Mm. projects. And that's what I wanted to be a part of. But in terms of photography, um, I I feel like I do, there's definitely transferable skills there, especially when it comes to sort of the marketing side and like imagery and social media. Um, Well, composition, layout. Is a you know understanding kind of the effects that you know the filters and things like that and how you can then apply them. Uh, I think that I, I I absolutely agree. I think I think one of the things I want to hone in on though I think there's something really interesting there about um, you kind of check it out. And I think there's a there's a really common thing. I mean, 
I, I don't I, I didn't quite check it out but I um I remember when I first started a long time ago um it was uh, 1987 would you believe yes I am that old <laughs> I, was 18, I gave my first pitch to a company called Rainbird at the time it was Rainbird um one of those anyway and um they said great idea come back when you made it and of course we didn't have any money we couldn't do it so i went and did a course and the course i ended up doing was uh, a marketing course so i ended up in mainstream it doing mainstream it marketing for about well just under 10 years before i got the chance to get the games job but i always knew i wanted the games job but you often i think you're often faced with a decision um because let's say that games jobs aren't necessarily the best paid uh, because there are a lot more people who want to be part of that experience. Yeah. There's lots of temptations to draw you away from doing the job that you really care about. Is that fair? Yeah. Um, and you almost have this dream job in mind and you think, oh, that's not achievable. No matter what job it is, what industry is in, I feel like there's so many people that would say, oh, I'd love to make paintings and just go and sell them. Um, and have a little cafe or something. Um, and we just don't think it's realistic when actually, why not? Why isn't it really realistic? You just have to put your mind to something. And oh, exactly. And uh, I totally agree. And I mean, it's, it's an interesting one because even, even becoming a publisher, in fact, even calling myself a game designer took me ages. I mean, because I consider myself, a, well, no, don't get me wrong, I'm not shy about my my um my skill set but uh, I'm, I, it's interesting how i was quite happy being a product owner in a telco for games therefore the games guy but to realize how much of that work i was doing was game design mm. and it wasn't it wasn't until i actually joined sony and started doing the requirements for this online gaming platform um you know the the, the world you know the playstation home environment uh, that i suddenly realized just how much my everyday work was game design it was different aspects, sure, but it was design. And I think that realisation that you, when you've been doing the job without realising it is sometimes as hard as feeling like, I don't want to say imposter syndrome. This is the trouble. I, I don't want to get into that because I think there's a, an interesting um, way of looking at that. Is it imposter syndrome? Because I know I did the work. I wasn't, I don't know. But do I necessarily value my skill set? Did you experience any of that when you were kind of first looking at trying to do this professionally? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think it, it was when I was pulling my CV together and trying to come up with transferable skills. I did have transferable skills, but I didn't necessarily want to put them down because I was thinking, oh, well, it doesn't apply to this or I haven't done that job specifically um, when I was looking at job descriptions. So yeah for sure um it was definitely a struggle so what helped you get through that what what you, you know you, you said you put your cv together uh, and you found you you've obviously presumably applied to a number of things what was it that made the ability for you to, to make that difference um so one of the best things i did was sign up to a mentoring program called limit break which is also happening now at the moment it certainly is <laughs> yes um so yeah, my mentor, Toby, um, mm. he kind of just opened my eyes as to what um, my skills were um, without even necessarily knowing um, me because he knew what I'd done. He knew I did photography and he was like, oh, well, community management, you can do this, you can do that. Um, and I was like, I can do that. And I just, it was a bit of self-belief that sort of sparked within, within me. Um, yeah and then that sort of it made me a lot more confident in applying to roles and actually selling myself more um yeah as i was talking a few weeks ago with uh, brandon from limit break about the, what they're trying to do this and it's in, i think it's interesting having you here as a kind of the other side of that story where you've experienced it. and I, I i'm down as a mentor there but i haven't done very much because i'm always so busy but i'm trying i'm trying to do more it's it's my fault but um but i think it's really interesting that the, the setup they're trying to achieve um in terms of um you know how how do you create an experience um actually you know brandon's into games isn't he sorry i always forget there's so many different schemes i forget which <laughs> mentoring scheme is which um but the, the point of this is though 
whether you're an individual like yourself, a student or a sort of postgraduate who's, who's looking at um, how to enter the industry, finding somebody who has experience, who is um, able to give you insight, to give you that kind of sounding board. I don't think they can give you confidence, but I think they can give you a sounding board to let yourself give yourself confidence. Is that, is that fair? Yes, I yeah definitely agree with that. Because um, it's only yourself that can sort of put two and two together and really put yourself forward. Um, and also the, the good thing about the mentoring program is for me entering the industry, it sort of seemed this big, scary place. Um, yeah. And the mentoring program sort of, it gave me a way in without making me feel like I was sort of just messaging someone saying, oh, can you help me? Um, mm. And on LinkedIn, especially, everyone sort of says in the gaming industry, oh, just message someone, do some networking. But mm. getting into the industry, it feels like you're just, I don't know, almost a bit like a burden or you're just sort of taking up people's time. Yeah, you don't want to take up space and it feels like a big thing. You know, you reach out to people who've got these, you know, tens of years of experience and you go, well, why, why would they listen to little old me? And, and I think I do feel like we're very lucky in games that a lot of people are very open and very keen on engaging with people. I mean, I'd, I'd like to think it's because most of us actually care about games. Most of us mm. want, still love playing. Um, and I think, we're, I think we're also very aware that we could do better in diversity. I think we have a particular... Um, there is always going to be an element of bias, not because of any kind of intent, but because the kinds of roles require levels of educational and economic opportunity in order to be in a position to take them up. But that's not an excuse. That's just a practical kind of consequence of where we currently are. and We need to do better at breaking that down. Yeah. Um, but it's, I think it's interesting how, how you've, you've shown that there is a way you've been able to get in um by looking at the skills you have by reaching out by engaging by networking um so was it just one mentor you had or did you do any other kind of engaging exercises or, or events or anything like that um so i did the mentoring alongside i was sort of just looking at online like jobs events um within the gaming industry women in games was one that i remember was very um i don't know it, it was very memorable for me um just getting into the industry because they were doing like you could send in your CV and they'd do it live and they'd go through it. Oh. Um, yeah. So there's lots of opportunities out there. You just have to take them. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, it's difficult when it's because did you have any trepidation, anything you were worried about in terms of the industry or um, have you, have you found it relatively straightforward? Um, I think the thing that's held me back the most is myself um, in that I thought everyone would be, oh, we've got all this experience, like we're not going to talk to you. Um, and actually everyone's so lovely. They just, I don't know, they welcome you with open arms pretty much. Um, so yeah, just actually, if you just take advantage of any opportunity you have to talk to people, uh, and a good example is that you were very proactive. You saw me reaching out um, um, because I've been looking at finding new people to talk to. And you just said, hey, you want to talk to us? Uh, and in fact, I think you, you were int originally intending to get me to talk to the developer you're working with. Yes. So you were, you were kind of doing a BD, a business development type moment of, of opening a door. And then I kind of bring you in and get you to talk to me as well. Yeah. So, you know. It, I don't think that's something that everybody does, but it is something that anyone can do. Mm. What gave you the confidence to do that? Would you, was there a push somewhere? Was there a pull somewhere? What what helped you do that? Um, I'd probably say my drive to be successful mm. um, and my taste of the industry so far. Mm. I've gotten into, so looking at data, and things and seeing the graphs go up and just that kind of stuff and it just makes me hungry to do well in the industry yeah. and with the projects i work on i want to push them and i want them to be successful um 
absolutely i think any i am a lover of data um and the more data i can get the better um but it's interesting how it's even though we've always been an industry that could get data we have haven't always embraced it and i think it's the last 10 years that particularly in mobile where we have suddenly really embraced data and it's had profound impact I think it's a single reason why mobile is still is currently the largest part of the industry because it's been the most willing to embrace the data. Oh, well, there are other reasons too, though. You know, let's not to go into that. But so, so here you are. You're you you've got this drive. You're looking at you know you're interested in the data. Uh, you're interested in in being successful. You're interested in kind of representing people. Um, so let's talk a bit about that first or the first role that you you or the main role that you're, you're doing now so who is it you're working with now and, and and what are the kind of particular challenges that you're facing in that in that context yeah so i'm currently working for tom senate games um he did work before about 10 years ago in the industry he um and one of his main games before was um run man race around the world which he yeah. collaborated with maddie sawson on um, and currently he's making the sequel to that game, Run Man Turbo. Um, and I'd say the biggest challenge is getting the word out, building that community, um, making people aware that this is happening and getting people on board. Yeah. And I think that's always difficult, especially when there's been a gap, when you've had history, you've got legacy, but there's been a gap between that game and it. And I, I feel that pain myself because most of the stuff that I did that was public was decades ago. I mean, you know, PlayStation Home was like 12 years ago, well, 11, 12 years ago, something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's ridiculous. That's like most people's careers have gone by in that time. And I've been doing things since then. Yes, I was an evangelist at Unity, but that's not the point. You know, I, I don't get thought of as a game person as, in the same way. I, I get thought of as a sort of BD type person, not a not a, a maker type person because yeah. I haven't been as visible. I've been consulting. I haven't been doing. Um, so I think it's interesting that that kind of challenge is, is profound. Have you found um, that's the same with the, the players or is there a nostalgia amongst the playing audience for the original game? There's definitely nostalgia. And it's as someone who didn't play the original game, wasn't aware of it. Um, and then trying to build up this community again, seeing people saying, oh my God, Runland's coming back, is actually really nice and satisfying to see because you can tell that there's this love for the game. Um, mm. People just, yeah, it's just kind of been lost in all the years. Um, it's quite hard to stay relevant. Yeah, I mean, keeping relevant is really difficult and, and having that nostalgia is great. But how do you kind of like communicate? Because how long, uh, I'm not sure what stage the development the, the game is at, but. I imagine there's going to be some time between announcing and releasing. And how do you keep people's expectations in check? Because I think we all know when we look at a game that we loved in the past, we will quite often expect a sequel to be vastly upgraded uh, mm -hmm. because our memory of how it felt is what we're looking for, not necessarily what the game what is it, am i making sense yeah no definitely um i think it's tricky um because you're sort of if you revisit games you've played in the past that you have this great memory of you actually play them and then realize oh this isn't what i remember um because the nostalgia almost comes with like the childhood feelings of i don't know beating your first boss or something like that Whereas yeah. you, you're at a different point in your life. So those feelings are completely different. Um, and you've experienced more, you've played more things, you've seen other opportunities for how a game can, can work out and therefore you might have more nuance expect. Is, is that all fair? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and especially today where there's hundreds of games, well, thousands of games that you can just... Literally millions on the... Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So... That's, just, that's just the mobile. I mean, let alone, you know, PC. I mean, console, the, the, the quantity of the game is huge. Yeah. Um, and so many people are just making sort of their own passion projects and sticking them up yeah. on stores. Um, so, yeah, it's a defi definitely a tricky one to navigate. Um, 
especially within the indie scene, I'd say, because mm. we're taking the approach of trying to be a bit more open throughout the development process um, and showing all those steps along the way, as opposed mm. to maybe a triple A company who would just drop some gameplay trailers. Um, yeah, well, not even gameplay trailers. They might no. drop down some, you know, awesome animation that is not, not actual not gameplay. Same. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I hate that. I honestly, uh, I, I, if you're going to show me something, show me what the game is. I, I want to know what the game. Is. What, do, what do I know? But I think you got a point there. That is a, I mean, incredibly fine line to to walk down, where you're trying to create an experience that you're sharing with players as you make the game, because you're having to help retain their attention for a long period of time. You may not always be able to keep up a, a set of messages. The the updates may not always be positive. They may not always be taken because games are iterative. They 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 step forwards and step back. How how are you dealing with that? I mean, is this now you're helping communicate a game that's being developed as it's going along? What are the lessons you're learning about that process and how you communicate it? Um. I'd say it changes all the time, especially within social media. What people want to see is constantly developing and changing. And you kind of have to navigate that landscape um, quite carefully because something that might do well that people wanted to see a month ago has actually completely changed and it's not as engaging anymore. Um, and obviously making engaging content is kind of everything that you want to do. Um, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> I get it, it's, it's difficult. The reason I, I, I asked the question is because one of the, I think one of the biggest challenges is quite often the kinds of things that we're making, a designer will understand why you're doing something in a particular way, because it's not always about what the moment of, of experience is for that particular player at that particular time there's often contextual reasons so i do this world with these things in it not because you care about these things but when you get to this stage you're going to need a mechanism a system that allows me to then take you to the next stage and i can't do that if i haven't built these systems yeah and that's just the gameplay design let alone the actual functional systems like um if i so I thoroughly recommend game devs do as much as they can on the server because then they can update the game dynamically. And I also think putting in-game community messages as well, I think communicating in-game is as important as that through social platforms. But building those kind of systems, lots of work is done and very little progress is visible. And if you've got to have a daily, weekly or a monthly beat of an update to community to make people feel that you're still working on it you're still um if you've got a lot of work being focused rightly so on something that looks invisible to the player how are they going to know that you've done anything useful no exactly it's it's very difficult to come up with when when all the work that has been done is purely sort of functionality and not not things that will engage the player um, it's very difficult to come up with, or more difficult to come up with ideas to share. Um, but yeah, one thing I try and do to combat that is we have weekly meetings and I'm always writing down any little thing that might, um, that's been changed in the game that might sort of spark an idea for a social media post or yeah. something that will help um, engage the community. Um, so what sort of things, I mean, um, I've seen things like, doing uh, a dev blog. I've seen things like having an artist record their whole process and then speeding up and then, you, you know, maybe you get them to talk through their, 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 what they were doing during the sped, sped up. But mm -hmm. that, I mean, they're to me a fairly straightforward. Are they the sort of things you're looking at or do you, have you found any other kind of interesting kind of avenues to pursue? Yeah, they're kind of, I mean, a dev log, we do a monthly devlog um, and then we can sort of take those bits and post them elsewhere, um, engaging the community on Reddit as well and kind of trying to make conversation around um, certain aspects of the game yes. is also quite important. 
um, and it's good to hear community feedback on what they want from the game. Um, I think game development is kind of in a tricky space because you come up with a good idea for a game um, and you try and commit to that, but it's also a product at the end of the day. And you've got to sort of fit this product around um, the gaming audience that um, you have to find the gap in the market for these people and you have to fit the game around these people. Yeah. You can't just make whatever you want and hope hope it works out. Oh, exactly. I, I um I'm probably bore everyone listening because I say the same thing every time almost, which is I think of games as being the second worst thing in the world. Um uh, making games because you've got the science, the technology, the narrative, the art, the marketing, the commercialization, all of those things you've got to do at once. And it's all down to the subjective opinion of players. But of course, the worst thing is not making it. Yes. So uh, again, like I say, it's, it's a common joke, but I, th I think there's something in it, which is, like you say, you've got to make something for the audience rather than yourself. And I think um, getting the audience to go with you is a really important thing. One of the lessons I learned doing Kickstarter is you can't always take your audience with you either. You've kind of got to build it where they are. And I think it's interesting. Um, for example, you, you're looking at Reddit. Is that where the community already were? The people who, who are fans of the original game? Yes. So I found that the majority, um, the majority of people who have said, oh, yes, I used to play the old game. Um, they have been on Reddit. Um, there's been some on Twitter um, and Instagram. Yeah. But yeah. Reddit, I feel like, is where you can find people of all ages on there. It's kind of a nice space for gamers. Um, yeah. Reddit, Reddit can be hit and miss, though, can't it? It can be an incredibly joyful place to be, but it can also be quite hostile in certain subreddits, at least. Yes. At least you can make mistakes and they are unforgiven quite quickly. <laughs> Is yeah. That yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I think it's quite interesting. Maybe it's just something people on the internet think about um, more than Reddit specifically. Yeah. But they'll make people will make comments about the game and what they think should be in the game, or things that have already been plan been planned to be put in the game, but yeah. at this point in development, it's just it's not in the timeline. Well, yeah. Um. So it's kind of how do you deal with those comments and that negativity um, without sort of spoiling too much or giving too much away? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a difficult one because I think authenticity at the end of the day is the key to all of this stuff. I think if you're not a genuine fan of the game, you can't really represent uh, the game. Uh, although it's a little bit more complicated than just, it's not black and white as it sounds. But I think you definitely need to be a, an authentic fan at the end of the day. Um, we, I think you've got to understand and listen to the players at the, moment, at the end of the day. And you've got to be someone that they can see that you're a gamer. If you, the, the, the worst, um, I think quite often when we see these um, negative backlashes, it's often where someone's gone in not respecting the community not respecting what the community is after and also where they've often either said nothing they won't do anything the community asks or they will um dismiss what the community asks but i think the biggest challenge or at least the thing that i find most interesting is i don't think you have to say yes what you have to say is why and you have to show that you've understood what they're after and you can share back that you paid attention, you want to pay attention. But this is actually the direction we're making. And this is why we're trying to make that and taking that, you know, audience, you know, showing an audience that you're doing it for positive gameplay reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think people will often um, sort of bring up pain points within games without actually realizing why it's a pain point for them. Um, 
or they'll say, oh, this is an issue when actually that isn't an issue. It's it's a feeling or something um, linked to that um, yeah. that needs to be changed. And, well, well, yeah. It's a challenge itself. It's like, that is the point of the challenge. If that was taken away, there wouldn't be the risk. And if that risk wasn't there, they wouldn't be enjoying things that they actually did. Could there be no, am, am I making sense? Like, yes, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's definitely sort of trying to speak to the community. I mean, that's one of the challenges of community management. You you have to speak to the community as a real person and in normal people language whilst trying to communicate game dev language and what you're doing to try and make the community happy. Exactly. You, you don't want to turn around and say something ridiculous, uh, you know, it, it, it's so many memes on the uh, hey fellow kids all that um, uh -huh. um again uh, we kind of banned me from doing uh community stuff in our team because you know i'm not gonna know the latest language meme etc that being said you know there are times to bring someone some old fool like me in because i have been doing this forever and because i you know clearly you know um bleed game um it, it's it's having the right context i think context is everything these things um you know and i've seen some really interesting stuff so basically um a, a friend of mine um he's one of the games i won't say who it was but um one of the uh, games i remember had a really open approach where they literally put out their roadmap and you could vote on it Ooh. Now that was a great idea, except quite often things would be voted on that would be detrimental if they were done in that order. Ah, uh, yes. And how would a how would a player know if you're not the coder, if you're not the artist, if you don't know what the resource plan is, if you don't know that that particular person's going on maternity leave or that particular person is, um, you know, having to go, you know look after their family or whatever it might even have a holiday because but we are human beings we do need to have rest um you know how would how could you possibly expect players to have reasonable expectations no that's a tricky one yeah because you definitely want to include the community in the more you can give them a voice and make them feel like they're a part of the project yeah i think that's really positive but there's definitely a limit to how much um influence they can have on the project I like to think of it as the boaty boat face problem. The issue wasn't um, that you got people voting for it. The issue is that you didn't have the appropriate intervention to make the selection choices relevant first. It's fine having lots of people submit ideas, but you then need to shortlist those with ones that you're happy to proceed with and then get people to vote on the ones you're happy to proceed with. Yes. In other words, basically treating it like, um, I don't know, you've got a stake too. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, game developers are, are spending a lot of their personal money, reputation, and um, you know, their their life in delivering these experiences, which are really hard to do. Um, you know, if you're not careful, you can, you know, I've seen a lot of game developers damage their mental health or, or even, their, even their physical health because of their passion and desire to release amazing games. And that's not the player's problem. That's, you know, no. the players are there to play a great game. And I think one of the things I think is really interesting about the community manager role is you are in that position where you're there to represent the player but you probably also know what's going on and working out what to say and what not to say, I imagine is quite difficult. Yeah. Um, and I'd also say you're also there to represent the dev team um, mm. to the community. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely a two-way thing. Um, and it's important that you work with both of them. And I think it's also important for the dev team to listen to the community manager um, yeah. and have trust in them that they 
can sort of speak for the community and it's important to sort of make a place within the community um, that's sort of not a toxic environment that's very easy to happen these days i think surely toxic environments don't exist in games it's <laughs> never happened never <laughs> yeah. uh, i i i joke because obviously uh we've always had to deal with these things yeah. and um in particular where there's uh ugc we've got to be really careful um uh people have often heard me mention this podcast the phrase ttp uh, which I'll happily explain offline, um, which uh, time to, and then I'll let you work out what the P stands for. Um, and um, anyway, point being is that the, you will always have trolls. You don't feed the trolls. Um, actually, with that in mind, I mean, how, I mean, obviously you're still relatively new in this space. How much have you been affected by the kind of troll kind of community? Have you been safe from that so far? Yeah, actually. Um, so my time in industry so far has been working with small devs, sort of hmm. growing from the ground up, basically, with trying to get their um, voice out there. Hmm. I'd say definitely when I ran the Discord community before, um, you definitely get people coming in and trying to disrupt the piece. Mm -hmm. um, it's part of it's the fun. <laughs> it okay. is. Not for me. No. <laughs> Not for a community manager, but for no. those individuals, yeah. Yeah. Um and it's kind of it's a tricky one because it's do you do you engage with it? Do you sort of just um I don't know, do you engage with it publicly or do you just nip it in the bud straight away? Um I have uh many a community manager friend who says ban them, ban them all. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I'm quite that radical, but um, I mean, there is a there is a truism about hard um, sorry, strict boundaries are are useful. Yes. That yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I've seen some we've seen some appalling behaviour, but we've also seen some amazing behaviour. Um, you know, some of the best experiences I've had are where communities have got together. Um, um, and I, I get a talk about this before, but the um, Air Attack um, was a game on uh, Wireplay back in like '99. Uh, one of the players had died, and somebody changed the map to have a gravestone to represent them, and they mm -hmm. did a fly past. Um, this was one of the earliest um, points where online gaming communities could be seen to be more than just people playing in dark rooms. And it was even in the Times uh, as a Maybe not front page, but it was a hot, it was um, covered by you know mainstream press. Uh, first time I think that was ever done, and that to me was a real sign of what what how powerful communities can be, where you see the impact that an individual and their real life has on everybody else around them. And yeah, if we can harness that if we can support that, then actually we're not we're not just make it a bit of entertainment we're making something which is about who we choose to be yes yeah identity is definitely a big thing um within the gaming space um and i think going off that point communities it's like as games they sort of give the community the space to be the best they can be as in communities the best community events or things that happen within communities almost happen because of the community rather than the games pushing them to yes. do something. It's more organic, um, I think. Um, There's a tipping point, I think, in design and marketing, somewhere between the two, where the momentum is driven from the game to the point where it's driven by the players. And it's a it's a alchemy. It's a mystical form. Uh, I can't tell you what that formula looks like. I wish I could, uh, but it's the thing I think we're always looking for. And this is why um, we put community at the heart of everything we do. So we, the people who are going to decide what the daily, weekly, monthly events are going to be in our team is going to be the community team. 
Yeah. Because I think that they're the ones who are closest to what players are actually doing. Yeah. Um, and that's not as common as it should be, uh, in my view. No, and even outside of the gaming industry, you see sort of now community managers and that kind of role starting to pop up more now. But it's surprising that that's not been a focus before. It's sort of been more around the marketing side and pushing sales rather than really understanding and getting to know your audience on a personal level, not just demographic um yeah so i mean working with tom um are you seeing that he's responding to this this passion that people clearly have for the original game uh is he listening to that you know are you finding that process working uh and and what impact do you think it's having on the development cycle yeah so it's definitely difficult at this stage because the game still is in its early phases Mm. um Although we've just the demo's gone gold, um, but yeah, I don't use the term gold anymore. Um, no. But it's it's interesting. I mean, how many how many people still use the term gold? I, I think that's interesting. Um, it is, you know, yeah. I, you know, I I have to sometimes explain to people what why you use the word gold as well. So uh, to be fair, know. I don't know that reason either. Uh, it's because we used to have gold CDs, which were the the master CDs. So you have a gold master, okay? Because that was the original master yep. that you put pressed the code onto, which would then be sent out to manufacturing and copied. Okay, that's cool. So that's why it's gold master. Yeah. So well, we don't um, have that anymore. <laughs> why would we? Well, oh, actually, they still do exist because if you're going to do a physical distribution, yes. you will still have a gold master. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Anyway, so that, like I said, you can tell I'm old. I, I have all these little anecdotes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so, yeah, you, you're at this demo. The demo's at gold. So, so you know, presumably must be quite interesting trying to get that out and announced. Did you build up to that release? So we're kind of in the process of that at the moment. Um, right. Next week is kind of when we're going to be hitting socials about it. Um, that might be so, about the same time as this comes out, so we all find out. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, hearing feedback at this stage is is difficult because you've got people who love the game and actually just want to keep seeing more of what's going on, and then you've got the people who don't necessarily know the franchise. Yeah. Um, and they're like, "Oh, I think you should change this, or this might be better." Um which is a tricky one to navigate because Tom's got a very unique style within um, his games, which makes it really fun um, to be a part of. But it definitely, you know, his games aren't going to appeal to the mass audiences or not as we sort of know it. A lot of games at the moment kind of come out looking very samey. Um, they were trying yeah. to go down this realistic route, um, whereas Run Man isn't like that at all. Um, so there's definitely, it's definitely a unique audience. But I think this is what the part of what an indie is. It's about a statement of who I am as much as it is a piece of... In fact, it's one of those things, it's like an interest. I, I think indie game development is an interesting one because you ask anyone, they'll have a different definition of what indie means. But for me, there is an independence of spirit in terms of the design that I'm interested in. So whether you are financially independent or not is less important to me as whether the vision has uh, an independent flair. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm only after the gaming auteur. I don't want that kind of like the genius leader all the time, but it's really interesting when you see people like Rami, when you see people like, might be a thought you see people like Tom coming up with their own takes of what they wanted to deliver that can be really interesting it's kind of also sometimes the antithesis of what I try to get most game devs to do when I'm providing them with advice as a mentor because I want to make games for an audience and so uh, th- these aren't necessarily odds by the way they just seem on the surface to be at odds 
and I think what, what's interesting is making sure that as from the community, from the outreach point of view, that you're clear what they should expect. Yeah. And, and that, it sounds like that that's non-trivial because if you've got audiences who don't know them, how would they know the context of why that element is there? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's it's difficult because you don't want to put off put off these people coming up with ideas and things because you know great but at the same time um this developer already has his own style um throughout previous games so unless unless you know about those games you're not gonna understand why this game looks how it how it does um but it also goes back to it's almost very simple in design um and i think a lot of games now try and overcomplicate what they're doing. It's like, oh, we need to add all these mechanics in to make it different. And actually, it's whilst you're trying to make an experience, it doesn't have to be, not all games have to be this really complicated experience mechanically, or you have to have um, super gamer skills to try and complete a game. It's, it's, it, you're playing it to have a good time. I, I think that's a really important point. I mean, if it, I've forgotten who it is, it's a French designer who said something along the lines of, a design is not done when I run out of things to add, a design is done when I've run out of things to take away. I love that. I love that kind of thing. That's very interesting. I'm terrible yeah. at it. <laughs> My design approach is I throw everything at it and then I take things away until I see what's left that works. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's not necessarily always the best thing. And everyone's got their own different style, as you say. So coming full circle. So you have uni, you've decided you want to work in games. You've gone out and you've done the accelerator thing. You found a, a number of clients to work with, working on individual games. People like Tom. Um, and in terms of that experience, so is what I mean, I'm going to ask you the interview question that everyone gets and everyone goes why are you asking me that but I think it's interesting because it it helps um kind of frame things so where do you see yourself being in that five years time thing and the reason I think it's because as a community person I think it'd be interesting to see you know do you see yourself the lessons you're learning take you further down the development route do you see it taking you further down the marketing route or do you see that this is a space itself that has um, the desire appeal and the opportunity? Anyway, sorry, I'm talking for you. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, I think it's tricky because I feel like my skill set definitely lends itself more towards marketing from photography um, and that side of things. But community has always had a soft spot in my heart um because especially growing up and being part of communities um and you see things happening and you want to be a part of things um and also now especially now in communities that i'm a part of you see some of the bigger companies handling situations and you're like they could have done something else with that they could have should have <laughs> yeah um yeah. and i think it's so important because the internet is great and it can also be a not very nice place and i think as community managers we should be trying to set a standard and making people happy and enjoy the content and not fight or you know be hostile about it it sounds almost like you're saying it's dangerous to go alone take a community manager yes it's a good thing <laughs> So uh, thank you very much. Uh, that was great. I mean, I think um, I think what we've been talking about has basically been really interesting journey. Uh, it's, it's interesting to see from the point of view of somebody who's coming relatively fresh, who's basically been uh, looking for the opportunities of how to get in a lot of the lessons that we've been talking about on previous podcasts about networking, about engaging with people, and you know the opportunities that community has it as a role. But I think it's really fascinating how you are ending it there. There's something about being part of something, being able to represent an audience, at, not just to um, the developers, but also for the developers. So being able to 
be in that pivotal point where you can truly embrace a game that you love and show others that that game is loved by the developers at least as much after all we're not making these things just for cash we're not sitting there i think even in even in the big triple a companies there are very few people who are doing it just for the paycheck uh, most of people who are making who are on the, on the coalface making games are doing so because they believe games are amazing and i think you know what you described in terms of being that community person, being part of that, it is an incredibly central role to modern gaming. It is, yeah. Um, and I think a lot of us have sort of grown up with games, and it's only sort of recently, I'd say, that actually, you know, even the school system and things can actually point to games as an industry that's viable, even though it has been for many, many years. Um, but community is such a central role um, when it comes to games that it definitely needs to be talked about more um, and given more attention, I think. And on that note, thank you very much. Um, if somebody wants to get hold of you and find out more about what you're doing in terms of freelance community management, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Yes, so you can email me at f.woolway at gmail.com. Thank you very much. And I think you're on LinkedIn as well because um, as a lot of us have started to do, use that a lot more yeah <laughs> i have so many people on linkedin it's ridiculous <laughs> anyway on the note thank you very much and i will uh say in that case that this has been your game dev london podcast i have been your host and we have had the delight having you joining us talking about her first entry into this industry and the role imports of community management uh if you've enjoyed this then please like subscribe and do all the usual stuff that you'd expect on these things tell a friend if you didn't like it tell us and we'll try to make it better and don't forget there's also the discord group for game dev london you can check out and carry on the conversation and keep talking to us and um, so thank you very much hope you enjoyed it until next time this has been your game dev london podcast